Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The convergence of art and science in how we view the world is central to Meltdown, a new documentary set in the tiny picturesque town of Ilulis at Greenland which is ground zero for the climate crisis. Later this hour, we'll hear how a fine art photographer and climate scientist enlighten each other while examining how we all might address the global crisis of climate change. First... The National Heritage Fellowship is our nation's highest honor in the folk and traditional arts, which recognizes the recipient's artistic excellence and supports their continuing contributions to our nation's traditional arts heritage. Legendary soul singer and songwriter William Bell is among the distinguished nominees who will receive the award this evening. He joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You were among the earliest artists to sign on with Stax Records in the 1960s. For those who may not be familiar with the label, how would you describe it? I would describe it as a family affair because the owners, uh, Estelle Axton and Jim Stewart, just let a lot of uh, neighborhood kids uh, inside the building and and we learned the craft, uh, we honed our craft. They gave us a chance to chase our dreams and uh, accomplish a lot of things in life and make a living at it. Hmm. Who were some of the other influential artists Stack signed on in the early days? Well, of course, you had Rufus and Carla Thomas, you had Sam and Dave, Otis Redding, Eddie Floyd, Johnny Taylor. The staple singers, and that's just to name we're, a few. We're talking basically who's who. And uh, y'all developed what was known as the Memphis Sound. The Memphis Sound, yeah. It was the uh, 
original Southern soul thing and it turned into worldwide, the worldly, the Memphis sound. How would you characterize Memphis sound versus Motown sound? What do you think distinguished it? I think it was a combination of everything that we had been exposed to on the radio because we had uh, a couple of radio stations, one black and one white one that all of the people would listen to. But on those two stations, we heard uh, not only R&B, rhythm and blues, uh, we heard gospel, we heard jazz, we heard rockabilly at the time, which is pop now. <laughs> and uh, then we heard country. So we heard everything on one station. So we had, uh, our influences were varied. Yeah, and you could experience and either draw from these influences or add to them in your case, which you certainly did. Radio is so formatted now that listeners don't have that option. There is a lot of merging of the genres of music now though, but back then uh, in the studio, we had both, before it was fashionable, black and white recording and creating together and that was the sound and the the actual musicians that played on say 90 percent of those records and recordings uh, were like Booker T and the MGs and then we had two blacks Al Jackson and Booker. Al played drums, Booker played organ and keys and then you had Steve Cropper and Doug Don who uh, Steve Cropper, of course, is well known with his guitar work and Doug Don with his bass work. Yeah. Technology was very different. It was non-existent in those days. Everything that we created, it was almost like a trial and error. You had, you wanted to create our, to give you an example, our echo chamber was a mic hung between the draperies and the wall, the, the concrete wall at, at the old theater building. So we were just creative and innovative back in those days and we'd make different sounds and, uh, but they have lasted and withstood the test of time. Yeah. What sort of discipline or self-discipline was required of you that younger generations didn't even have to consider during recordings. Self-discipline was ultimate. I mean, because we only had starting out two tracks to record to. <laughs> so you had the band on one track and you had the vocalist on the other track. So you had to make sure you were dis, uh, distanced at, at, at a certain point for the lead vocals in the back of voices and then you had to know your craft. You had to be right on point with singing or playing because you could go through a, an entire recording song and, and if a horn squeaked or somebody's voice cracked or something like that, you had to start all over again. And so of course, everybody looked at, <laughs> at you if something happened on your end. So it is still that discipline in us. Wow. You have quite the ensemble performing with you at each concert or festival, a 12-piece band. Why do you like working with such a large ensemble? 
Oh, this group, uh, they are like uh, my surrogate family here with me. Uh, it's like they've been with me about 25 years. Now, there are a couple of new ones in the group, uh, that we've, but they've been with me uh, three or four years now. So, But the core group has been with me for a long time. So we are a family. We've been performing all over the world together. So... Uh, we are adept at making whatever changes we have to make to get our sound across. It is uh, the authentic old school Memphis Southern soul sound because we, you have to have all of the horns and the guitars and the, the drums and all of the live musicians in order to create that sound. And that's what I kind of insist on. I thought our love would last forever We would raise a family But the cards were dealt against us It was never meant to be When love walks out and leaves you Loneliness steps in You may take a couple of rounds but the house always wins. Whoa, yeah. Oh, I love it. Oh, those horns make such a difference. Oh, yes. <laughs> the energy that it, it puts out with having live musicians on stage is just unreal. Oh, and how we miss that in these pandemic days especially. I know it, that's been quite a test for us, but we have resigned ourselves to just be creative now. So we, I have a studio, so we do a lot of work in the studio where we can social distance and all of that. And uh, so we've been doing a lot of things there and, and to uh, perform them uh, like uh, virtually. Yeah, well, as... Part of the virtual presentation for the NEH Awards, viewers will be able to hear some of your music. Yes. Can you tell us which songs will be presented? Well, I did one of the old ones, which is uh, the first one that I recorded with Stax, with You Don't Miss Your Water. I kept you crying Boy, I wouldn't be true. But when you left me, said bye I miss my water. My And then I did one of the ones from my Grammy-winning last CD, which is This Is Where I Live. La, 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 la. Yeah. I was born in Memphis in a different world. Now that time has come and gone. 
like 60 years, but I was with them for about 14 years as an artist and writer and producer. Then uh, I started my own thing after they, of course, went under as far as filing bankruptcy and all of that. And then to go back after they've been resurrected by Concord Stacks now, and to sign on again and to win a Grammy for them and... uh, it was just rewarding. I mean, it was just, it's unreal to say how I felt and how they felt. (laughs) Coming full circle. Yes, absolutely. Would you talk about your mentorship work with young musicians and the Stax Music Academy? Oh, yes. About 20 years ago, we decided that we wanted to buy back that lot that Stax had stood on and build that building back and start a a school for the kids that they could learn the craft and chase their dreams also. So we did that with a few of the, I think Isaac Hayes, uh, Deanie Parker, David Porter, myself, and Rufus Thomas were the first ones that sat down to uh, talk about doing that. And we did concerts and things to raise funds. We finally were able to uh, acquire the lot that Stax stood on at the corner of Macklemore there. We uh, found the original blueprints of the building and we built it back to spec. And we opened back up and started the Stax Music Academy. And it's just wonderful how those kids have grown and blossomed and gone on to become successful musicians and artists in their own right. And that, I'm just like a proud grandfather because I sit back and smile every time I see one of the kids achieving something. But we've had 100% graduating um, classes for about seven years. And Berkeley, the School of Berkeley Music has given full scholarships to, I, I think maybe, 10 or 12 of our kids already. So, uh, and we work closely with Berkeley also. Mm, Really worthwhile work. I know you've lived in Atlanta for several years and you call Georgia your adopted home. (laughs) How do you think this state has grown musically in comparison to Memphis, which has a much older tradition? 
I think Georgia has grown tremendously in both the, the industries, music and movies. But when I first moved here in 74, there weren't many musicians here. I think uh, it was Hamilton Bohannon. And then I moved here. And of course, James had the Future Shark show here, here on Turner, but he lived in uh, Augusta. So there weren't many musicians here. They, they have a lot of musicians out of uh, Atlanta that have gone on successfully, like Gladys and different people and Hank Bell and the Midnighters, and I can go on and on, but they always had to uh, go someplace else to attain that success. And, and after I came here, I was here for a couple of years and uh, finally settled in after I, I loved Atlanta when I first were coming here during concerts and I fell in love with it. It was similar to Memphis, but only more a little bit more progressive than Memphis and had more things with the arts community. And so I moved here for that purpose and built a home and built a studio and production company here. But I was welcomed in with open arms. And uh, after the second year, I think I was here, Clarence Carter moved here. So now with LaFace and all of them and Dallas Austin and all of the guys that started the hip hop thing. Uh, it, it is just wonderful to see how Atlanta has grown musically. Uh, I see the same thing that happened with Memphis happening in Atlanta now. Really exciting. This NEH award honors our nation's traditional arts heritage. I was hoping you could talk about the elements of soul music and how soul is ingrained into our American heritage. Actually, soul music developed through the churches during uh, slavery time and then after slavery. The Blacks people would always after working in the fields and everything, they would sit around the campfires and everything in their little communities and, and sing songs. And that developed into Sunday mornings, going to church. And then from that, of course, the same people that were working in the fields, they liked to dance and party. So a couple of the blues singers like the Robert Johnsons and the, the older musicians that started you know, the, the Muddy Waters and the Howling Wolves and the, all of those guys, they started working in these, what they call, um, <laughs> we call them now juke joints. <laughs> they were houses more or less that they turned into some type of a, a, a club that people would come to on the weekends after working hard in the fields and then uh, they would go there Saturdays and then they go to church on Sundays. So they got a full dose of blues and, and gospel. So when we, when we started this soul thing, most of the people that were in soul music, including Sam Cooke that started this soul craze, he came out of church and he saw, sang with the soul stirrers for years and then went on to do secular music. After Sam, then uh, other artists realized that they could make a better living singing secular music. So we joined in. It just became popular with the people because they got 
mainly the same feeling because we were gospel singers singing in the church choir and singing solo in church. And some of us were preachers like Solomon Burke. <laughs> so we were the same people, but we were doing music that talked about life and talked about the struggles of life and people just readily identified with it. So soul music blossomed and it became what it is today, but you have the same musicians that play in church, played in the uh, recording studios to create it. It's all from the soul. It's all from the soul. I mean, and they say uh, in our community that you can never find a soul singer that will sing the same song identically the same way because it's all how you're feeling that story you're trying to tell at any given time. That's very true. We sing according to how we're feeling at the moment. Said I'm sorry, babe, for your time. Said I'm sorry, babe, for your time. Girl, I forgot to be your yes, I did. What is your hope for future generations carrying on the tradition of soul? I think it's very, very uplifting that there are a lot of talented youngsters out there with great musical talents and, and great voices that are coming along. We see them in working with them. I've had some on the road, some of the Stax kids on the road, so they can get an idea of working and performing before a live crowd. I took them to the Smithsonian. I took them to uh, Europe with me and I took them to actually an AARP award at Disney World. Oh my. <laughs> so they've seen the whole gamut of it and they perform themselves and it's very good for them to get that experience. But I think Soul music is alive and well in the youngsters, and uh, there are a lot of, of them that's coming along, and they put a different little spin on it, and um, because this is their generation, just like we put a spin on B.B. King and Bobby Bland's generation, they were the generation before me, so when we came along, we were doing the same music, but according to what you're experiencing in your generation, you add that to it. But when you start performing it, you find out that people are people and we all, all have the same wishes, desires, frustrations, and all of that. And no matter where you appear in the world, some, some of the audiences might not uh, speak fluent English or something, but they feel the impact of soul music because of 
the feeling they get from the delivery of it. It's the same people all over the world. And now, of course, with technology, we, it's world music. Ah, yes. Interesting. Finally, I wondered what it means to you to be honored as one of the National Heritage Fellows. It is just, like I said, it's a wonderful feeling. I'm elated over it, but I'm humbled because you just never know as an artist if anyone's listening, (laughs) you know, or watching what, what you're doing. And there's so many trial and error and pitfalls in this business. So you wonder sometimes if you if you make a dent, a dent in it, but this is a, an affirmation that people were listening, people were paying attention, and that I was able to develop and bring something to the table for the generations that will last, and uh, that's a that's that's a good feeling because the music will last longer than. the the live bodies. William Bell, I don't think you have to worry about anyone listening. History has spoken. People have been listening to you for decades, and it's just a joy to see you receive this recognition and honor during your lifetime. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Legendary soul artist William Bell. He'll receive the nation's highest honor in the folk and traditional arts in a virtual ceremony of the 2020 National Endowment for the Arts National Heritage Fellows tonight at 8. More information about that presentation will be on our website, wabe.org slash The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. An exhibition of nearly 60 works by Emma Amos is on view now at the Georgia Museum of Art. She's best known for her colorful large-scale canvases that incorporate African fabrics and semi-autobiographical content. Shortly after the show opened in January, I spoke with Shania L. Harris, the curator of African-American and African diasporic art for the museum. Here, she describes the various elements of Emma Amos's art. 
I would describe her work as being pretty eclectic. Not only was she a painter and printmaker, she was also a weaver. And you'll see that in the majority of the works that we have on display that her use of things that are related to her uh, profession, her earlier profession as a weaver and a textile designer interplay a lot with her, much of her later work or the work throughout her career. And I think that it's that mix of materials and the kind of meanings that she's able to attach to all these different types of materials is which, what makes it so rich and so vibrant visually as well as in terms of uh, content. Yeah. In fact, visually rich is exactly what comes to mind because the bold use of color, the varying textures are also pleasing to take in. And yet there's a whole lot of history and narrative and intersection taking place as well. You mentioned her use of fabrics. What kind of African fabrics would she employ? Her history is really interesting because when she originally began weaving, she created her own textile. So some of the works in the exhibition show examples of her own weavings. When she worked for a designer named Dorothy Leaves, who's pretty uh, well known in the kind of the design industry, working with all kinds of commercial products, but also, you know, there's a, a great deal of artistry that was involved. But later, uh, Amos began to really incorporate African fabrics, um, West African fabrics, more or less, everything from kente cloth, Malian cloth, you know, from uh, Burkina Faso, and, and so forth. So there's a mix of things that she both wove herself, but also fabric that she may have purchased in markets in New York or when she traveled um, to other places that may have had African fabrics or African fabric traders. And she really does a great job of trying to not only, you know, incorporate these fabrics to give her works a sense of beauty, but also a sense of movement. And that's one of the uh, subtext that comes out early in her work is that she incorporated textile, not just for decorative purposes, but actually to give her your figures or the narratives that were contained within um, her compositions, a sense of movement or a kind of a free form uh, quality to them. Mm. Shania, how did Emma Amos examine racism, address sexism and privilege? in her artwork? Well, Amos went through kind of a series of, how should I say, transformations in terms of how she dealt with a lot of those topics. In the 1960s, she was involved with an organization or a short-lived but important um, artist collective named Spiral that was had Romer Bearden, uh, Norman Lewis, some of the big names in African-American art. So that group uh, largely was trying to define how Black art uh, should be, you know, what are some of the issues around Black art and how Black artists should tackle issues like civil rights in their work. And there was a lot of debate, you know, about what Black artists should depict, whether it should be representational or whether it should be up to them. And Amos was involved in all of those uh, debates in that group. She was the youngest, she was a woman, but she also began to note 
kind of her unique status as a woman. You kind of see it coming out in those earlier paintings where you know, she's depicting even herself and her place in the world. And then later on, as she began to take on other projects uh, as an artist, when she began to teach at Rutgers University, she became involved with a collective called the Heresies Collective that had an important journal. She, we found out later on in uh, researching her that she also was involved in another notable women artist collective, a uh, feminist artist collective called the Guerrilla Girls. And I'm still trying to figure out which one she was. I think I know which one she might have been. <laughs> so, you know, because it was a clandestine group. So with all of these groups that she became involved with and just in her own evolving time uh, with her work, dealing with being motherhood and being a wife and trying to have a career, she had different levels of engagement with other artists who were facing many of the same issues. And she began to evolve in her thought about her place in the art world as a woman and as a black woman. Hmm. Looking over the preparatory material and seeing the images you provided, I'm astonished that we don't know more about her, that Emma Amos isn't a name that we think of alongside of Hale Woodruff, Romare Bearden, or more contemporary of hers, perhaps David Hockney or Alex Katz. Do you think it was because she was female? Well, Amos, while uh, she was actively creating art and teaching, she, you know, she did some writing and, you know, and even some newspaper editorials. And one that comes to mind uh, that she did for the New York Times, where she talks about being invisible. Um, as a woman, a black woman artist. And, you know, the one of the lines was, they only show me during Black History Month, which I find kind of ironic because her show opens up here <laughs> around Black History Month. But but I think she would understand it's past Black History Month. We, we're not going to take her down in, at the end of February. But, you know, she talked about this kind of level of invisibility that are faced by black artists, but particularly women artists um, and how often it's at in the other things that, you know, I've read, she talks about how oftentimes, you know, it's at the end of an artist's life. And it's kind of a little prescient of her to have mentioned that, that the notoriety begins to come. And trying to find ways to combat that through her work or by dealing with issues of patriarchy or racism, sexism, was really important to her. And she always seemed to place herself in the center of that debate she realized that she wasn't just depicting things apart from that debate, that she was principally a part of it. And that's why you see a lot of works in the exhibition that where she inserts herself, her own self-portrait in different scenarios, uh, whether it be on a tightrope or whether she's falling through the air or whether she's, um, you know, just creating a self-portrait that's assertive and confirming her presence um, in this largely rarefied art world that she had entered. There's so many marvelous pieces in this show. One that particularly stands out is Emma Amos's painting, Tightrope. Would you describe this portrait and what she's trying to convey? Well, in Tightrope, which is a very well reproduced painting, by the way, it's very popular. 
I've seen it reproduced in a lot of illustrated books and so forth that deal with feminism or, you know, African-American art or black women artists um, and so forth. It depicts Amos who's wearing kind of like a house coat, like a black lace house coat. And she has a Wonder Woman uh, costume underneath her lace house coat. She's suspended and walking on a tightrope. And, you know, she has this kind of, you know, more abstract kind of mob of eyes that are watching her from below. And, you know, she looks like a circus act. And she's kind of, and she's what she's holding in one of her hands is her paintbrushes in a kind of precarious way. She's got her fingers kind of curled around it. And then in the other hand that she's holding what looks to be a t-shirt that shows the torso of one of Gauguin's or his, his child bride, Teyamana. And she's talked in lectures in the past about how abusive she viewed that relationship being a child bride who ends up getting syphilis from that really great artist, uh, modern artist uh, that everybody loves. But the backstory of this woman who was the muse in many of his paintings, which she's actually extracting that torso image, but also there's some images of the of the painting itself that she's photo transferred into the edges of her canvas. She's showing that, hey, you know, she's kind of aligning herself with that kind of subjugated history of women. But also, you know, she loved a lot of these artists. She loved Matisse, she loved Gauguin, she loved uh, Picasso, but she also critiques them that they are a part of the patriarchal culture that she critiques and how it impacts her as an artist is that she's fighting a lot of the stereotypes and fighting some of the abusive representation of women that she finds in her own study of past art, you know, world art traditions. And so Amos kind of takes on this role of a superwoman who's trying to save, you know, the uh, not only representations of women, but the, her own representation for that matter as an artist. And it's a precarious place to be in. So she's on the tightrope. Shania Harris is curator of African-American and African diasporic art for the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens. Emma Amos, Color Odyssey, will be on view at the museum through April 25th. To say we're on thin ice has more than one meaning. When it comes to climate change, the film Meltdown is shot on the vast ice sheet in Greenland and examines global warming as we view the magnificent, ever-changing glaciers in that remote part of the world. The documentary was written by Frederick Golding. The executive producer of Meltdown is the award-winning producer-director Mike Tolan. He's here now via Zoom. Mike Tolan, thank you for joining us. It's nice to be here. And what a time to talk about <laughs> melting ice and climate change, huh? Oh, it's so sobering. Your most recent project was the Emmy Award-winning series The Last Dance, a 10-part documentary on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Meltdown is quite a contrast to that project. Mike, how did you become involved with this film? 
Well, you know, as filmmakers or content creators, <laughs> uh, the rubric that is all often used these days, you know, the best we can do is follow our heart and read the tea leaves and things emerge in the most unlikely ways from the most unlikely places. And if I said to you that this film really emerged from an urgency of interior decorating, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you'd probably raise an eyebrow or scratch your head a bit. But I have a friend named David who's an art collector who was staying at my New York apartment for a few days way back in 2015 and uh, noticed without being too critical that the walls were rather bare and he wanted to know how come and what I was looking for. And I said, well, I, you know, it's only a part-time place and I'm not there that often. I haven't gotten to it, but um, yeah, I got to get to it. And he said, what do you like? And I said, well, I'm partial to photography, um, particularly black and white and especially landscape photography. And he said, oh boy, look up Lynn Davis. You know, nowadays you just, you know, type in those letters and Google away. And there are these spectacular photos that Lynn Davis has been shooting for the last 30 years of the icebergs off the west coast of Greenland, uh, across from a little town called Alulasat in the Arctic Circle. He introduced me to Lynn. Uh, I loved Lynn's photography. She's got a gallery, the Hauk Gallery on Fifth Avenue, if and when the world starts spinning again and those kinds of visits are uh, available to the public. Um, And I fell in love and I said, gee, why don't we go back (laughs) to Greenland? I said, you're a climate change chronicler. She said, well, I'd love to go back, but I should tell you, I don't know the first thing about climate change. And I said, well, that makes two of us. (laughs) So how about if we bring somebody else who does? And Fred Golding, who, as you already mentioned, was the writer and director and an old, old buddy of mine with whom um, we actually did the Hank Aaron film together, which was nominated for an Oscar. um, Yes. Many years prior in the 90s. May you rest in peace. Henry is... Uh, one of the greatest men I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. And Bill Clinton said about Henry at one of the services um, upon Henry's recent death that you have to measure uh, Henry Aaron's greatness in terms of his goodness. And that is the truth. And those words speak very loudly about a man I admired and loved greatly. Anyway, so Frederick and I went on a a quest to find a, a true climate change expert. And Fred uncovered this amazing man named Anthony Lazarowitz, who was leading the Yale Climate Change Department. It's not actually called that. It's much bigger than that, but it encompasses studies of climate change. And uh, Tony is a social scientist. And so his focus is not necessarily on measuring the abatement of the glacier or the temperature changes or, you know, the analytics. His focus is on attitudes. And so he has created this paradigm Uh, as a way of looking at the way people approach climate change, the way they think of it, the level to which they consider it a priority, you know, on the spectrum from apathetic at one end to alarmed at the other and everything in between. So it's very, it's it's great for someone like me, who is always, you know, kind of questioning myself and how could I be contributing more to the alleviation of greenhouse gases? And how can I live my life in a more environmentally positive way. And anyway, 
Anthony never had been to Greenland, had been studying it and considered it ground zero for his studies and was so excited about going. There was a little kid in a candy shop kind of as a, as a baseball guy. He said to me, this would be like I was offering you a chance to go to Wrigley Field or Fenway Park for the first time, wouldn't it? And I said, yep, the two shrines. So Lynn was excited and Anthony was excited. And we decided to not have them meet until they meet on film in Greenland in a little cafe in Alulasat. And so what really emerged, um, as you've seen, Lois, is a, is a unique look at climate change and global warming from the dual perspectives of art and science. Lynn is focused on the beauty and Tony is focused on the impending tragedy. And as you see in the film, they really enjoy, I guess, the exhilaration of discovering their focus in, in their professional lives from an entirely different perspective and really opening their minds to these other kinds of considerations. So I really think it kind of shakes our beliefs up and, uh, and puts them in a very different perspective. Yeah, with her photographic eye, Lynn brings the artistic point of view, and Tony Lazarowitz provides a scientific explanation. I think it's very effective in the way that we as viewers see how their perspectives come to inform each other's understanding of this subject. Would you talk about how the film unfolds? It's essentially a conversation. Yeah, it, it really is that. I mean, this was uh, late summer around Labor Day, so it wasn't full on, you know, midnight sun, but it was a lot of, you know, let's say 16, 18 hours of sun. So we had a lot of time to go out on boats and examine the icebergs. And Lynn was always commenting on the qualitative and quantitative difference in the icebergs from the previous trips. Um, there was a lot of just getting to know each other and, and Tony asking how Lynn got introduced to Greenland and how it came about that she journeyed from New York City, where she was living all the way to Greenland. And and Lynn asked Tony, you know, how he got interested in this subject. So it's, there's a lot of personal. Lynn talks about coming to Greenland originally out of a sense of loss. Lynn was a photographer in a very uh, elite and prestigious group of downtown New York, mostly portrait photographers led by Robert Maplethorpe and Peter Huger. And, and she was um, right in that cozy little group. And in the 80s, during the AIDS crisis, she just watched them disappear one by one. And she was feeling this enormous sense of loss. And her husband, Rudy Wurlitzer, a filmmaker in his own right, saw these photos in a magazine of icebergs in this far-reaching part of the globe and showed them to Lynn and said, they kind of remind me of some of your nudes, some of the, you know, the shapes and figures of the icebergs remind me of some of your portraiture. And she said, get me a ticket. <laughs> I need to go as far away from here as I can. I need a cleansing. I need a refresher. And she brought her little Roloflex for those photographers out there. She still uses a single lens camera. It's a tiny little box. She can pack it in her little fanny pack. She still shoots film. She rolls it by hand, 12 exposures, just like we used to shoot family photos decades ago, process it in a dark room. And the creations are spectacular. 
because of the way she does it, she can blow these things up to very large size, you know, great for my apartment because they'll fill, fill some walls. Mm -hmm. After all, that was the original intent. But we find out as we wind our way through the film that there's a whole other level of loss that's associated with Lynn's many trips to Greenland. I'd rather not reveal it because it's kind of a surprise at the end of the film and it's a surprise to Anthony and he discovers it with the audience. And they talk very profoundly, very openly about their discoveries and how, again, as I mentioned earlier, you can have tragedy and, and, and beauty intersecting in the same little corner of the globe. And I think they, I mean, Tony was so moved by it that he was tearful at times, just the beauty struck him and he ended up shooting as many pictures as Lynn did. And uh, I think they both came away really transformed by the experience. It, it stayed in my mind when she said, it's not just ice, it's architecture. Mm. And I think you bring out the fact that she photographed ruins, monuments of lost civilizations. And Tony makes the point that, sadly, that's what she's capturing here. Right. Looking at Greenland melting, Tony Lazarowitz says he's reminded of how precious life is, and he remarks... The climate system is an angry, angry beast. Mm. Was your intention to motivate viewers to activism or advocacy? Well, that's a great question. And I guess the right answer is yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> we can all be quiet activists and advocates. And sure, we, we, we should be. Some of us probably are in an unknowing kind of way. I mean, if, if you are driving an electric car, you know, that's a form of activism. If you, you know, talk to your kids about recycling, that's environmentally significant. You know, we, we have the tagline, it's not too late. So yes, we want people to watch this film and think to their normal everyday, well, there's nothing too normal everyday about our lives in the last year. But going forward, just being a little more mindful of the things, the little things we can do. You know, it's funny. I saw Bill Gates interviewed on 60 Minutes. He's committing billions of dollars. It's his new cause now as he's moved off of a lot of health crises to take on climate change. And the interviewer said, you know, you're flying around in private jets. You probably contribute more to greenhouse gases than anyone else on the planet. And Bill Gates laughed and acknowledged it. And he, you know, there are ways for people to buy carbon credits and to try to live lives that are carbon neutral and so forth. I think in the long run, Bill's going to do a lot more positive than negative. But I want people to look at it for all of its complexity. It's not just so simple as getting a car that's electric or has high miles per gallon. It's about instilling values in our children, living our life with values. I've talked to some climate change experts who say this quest, this journey, this effort to kind of bring us back, especially after these four dark years where climate change took a beating, is not so much an economic or a political quest. It's really more a value-driven spiritual journey where we have to ask ourselves, you know, what it means to be human on this planet, to really address this issue 
with all its complexity. And that's how, that's why I love bringing a photographer who never really thought of the implications on the climate level, who just saw the beauty, who is now by her own admission enlightened. So yeah, I guess long answer to your questions. I hope, I hope people are enlightened and driven to at least some form of activism or advocacy. Mike Tolan, this has been so interesting and enjoyable. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Executive producer Mike Tolan. His new documentary, Meltdown, can be streamed on Apple iTunes, Vudu, Xfinity, and other streaming platforms. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow morning at 11, we'll hear about a new PBS special featuring some of the greatest soul, rock, and R&B artists of the 20th century. Also, the Little Composers series of books with music introduces very young children to Mozart and Vivaldi. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Brightsis. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.